Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Robert Wirth is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. He recently wrote an article about his interview with Saif al-Islam Gaddafi. Robert, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me. In May, you did an interview with Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, the son of Libya's longstanding dictator. What did you expect going into that interview? I really wasn't sure what to expect. I knew that he was someone who had political ambitions. We had talked about that during the course of the preparations for our interview. I knew that he was working to rebuild his father's political movement, such as it is. What I didn't know was personally whether he had changed, whether he'd learned something from his experience. And I think that was the thing I was most curious about. There's the issue of what he learned from his own personal experience. And there's also the question of what he learned from the broader trajectory of the Arab Spring throughout the region, what happened in neighboring countries. What lessons do you think he did draw from the last 10 years? My sense is that he continued to see those events entirely through the prism of his own family and its political role. Maybe it was unrealistic of me to imagine that he might have seen it all from a wider perspective, but I think he obviously was deeply affected by the killing of his father and his brothers. And, you know, before 2011, he'd spoken a lot about democracy, about the direction of the region. He presented himself as someone who could see things in a wider way. But I think he really just saw it essentially as the people who supported us and the people who betrayed us. He had a very tribal way of seeing it all. I don't know if you met him before this. I certainly met him before 2011. He was an interesting character. Had you had an opportunity to connect with him before? I had not. Had you met with any of the reformers around him? Because, of course, there were several, some of whom seemed quite serious. Yes, I met a number of them during my time in Libya in 2011 and 2012. And some of them, of course, had worked with him. And that was part of what made me so curious about him was that this was a guy who was obviously at the center of the Gaddafi regime, but also had these longstanding relationships with a variety of people, as you know, who were real reformers, who really wanted to see a different kind of Libya, as well as people at the London School of Economics and people in the West who were deeply interested in the possibility of a more democratic Libya. When he, of course, got a PhD from the London School of Economics, controversially. I met somebody once who said, I didn't write his dissertation, but I know the person who did. And I presume he was not referring to Safe himself. Yes, yes, I think that's safe to imagine. Based on this conversation, do you think any of the reform talk in Libya ever was real? I mean, given what you concluded about SAFE, do you think the discussion about reform in Libya was always deeply misguided? I think the expectations for change were so different prior to 2011. I think that SAFE himself probably did want to change I'm pretty sure that he wanted to change Libya. I think he imagined something closer to the UAE, that he imagined the country would remain very authoritarian, that he would be at the helm, that there would be, let's say, a little bit more margin for rights of some kind. 
that economically, for sure, he imagined a more functional private sector and more open relationships with the rest of the world. In the broadest sense, he wasn't interested in elections, but he was interested in a country that was more functional and in certain respects worked more with institutions than his father's country had. You wrote a book in 2016, an excellent book, on the Arab Spring called A Rage for Order. Does what you discovered in your conversation with Saif al-Islam Gaddafi fit in with what you concluded about that? Did it enrich what you concluded about the course of the Arab Spring, the future of governance in the Arab world? I think it just underlined for me the extent to which if you don't have the kind of foundations that you need to build a new society, that there's nothing in the short term that can happen. It's so difficult to build those things. And Libya was probably the worst of all those countries in the sense of its existing structure being ready for something different. And it was poignant, especially because, as you know, in 2012, after that brutal year of civil war and the NATO intervention in 2011, there were elections in July of 2012 and they seemed promising. And there were a lot of figures who, at least to us in the West, seemed appealing. And then the whole thing fell apart because more than anywhere else, the country was fragmented along geographic lines and there were just so many people with guns. In the past, you've been optimistic about the Tunisian political experiment, which looks a lot less certain after the president dismissed the parliament this summer. What do you think we should conclude from Tunisia, which seemed very promising? What do you think that should tell us about the prospects for Arab reform generally? Well, I remain fairly optimistic about Tunisia simply because it doesn't have so much of the gunpowder of the countries around it. It doesn't have a deeply broken society with armed militias all over the place. It doesn't have oil. It doesn't, at least for now, have a politicized military. And it's true that they've broken with their constitution and with some of the norms that they had painfully set up. But I still think it is more a country of institutions. So I think they're still on a better track. There are a lot of people, both in Tunisia and outside of it, who are deeply worried about what's happened in the past few months in Tunisia. And I should say I am too. But I still think it can recover. I don't think the damage is that lasting. And in terms of the long-term prospects in Arab countries, to me, a big part of what was so poignant about the, the Arab Spring writ large was that our attention spans had gotten so short because of social media. And after all, that was partly what made these uprisings happen, right, was that they spread so quickly. But we forget that it takes an awfully long time to build something viable. And that's true in Tunisia as well. Lisa Anderson famously wrote a book that argued that the difference between Libya and Tunisia is the Libyans were colonized by the Italians and the Tunisians were colonized by the French and the French tried to create a better fabric for governance when they were there. Do you think it goes back to that? Do you think it goes back earlier? Do you think it's more recent? I mean, what would differentiate a country like Libya and Tunisia? And how long do you think it would take to get them into a different place? I do think that the Italian legacy in Libya there were just a lot of brutality and a lot of suffering that helped to tear apart whatever social fabric was there. But I also think that Libya was, even before European colonialism, it was just a less unified area. The south was very cut off from the north, and then the east was very cut off from the west. And that limited the ability to build a unified state. 
What's funny, though, there's a real pride among Libyans. First of all, the fact that they fought so hard against the Italian colonialists, but also a sense that culturally they remained who they are. You know, if you talk to some Libyans, they'll say, Tunisia, you know, they're just a bunch of pretentious people who imitate the French. They don't really have a strong identity. And I mean, maybe to some extent it's defensive talk by people who obviously are, in, in a political sense, sort of a basket case as compared with the Tunisians. But it's true that Tunisia remains in a lot of ways very imitative of France. I think that's part of what Ennahda, the Islamist group in Tunisia, has pushed back against, is this feeling that there was a rigid imitation of France politically and socially going on in that country. And they didn't like it. They liked the more Anglo-American model, which Ennahda picked up a lot of because many Ennahda members, including Rashid Khanoushi, spent their years of exile in London. And your argument is that actually contributes to creating a greater climate of liberalism or at least potential toward liberalism that Libya doesn't have. Yeah, I think that's true. Tunisia also had a much deeper history of contact with Europe and with the rest of the world. And that probably helped to some extent. And at least in the recent centuries, I think a slightly less violent history. Four decades under Muammar Gaddafi, Libya was completely sui generis. It was the most unique place I've ever been. Do you think Libya is becoming less unique? Or do you think that its history of violence combined with the competition for oil wealth makes Libya still a very unique place in the world? It still seems very unique to me. And again, I don't know how much they want to hold on to that particular uniqueness, right? I think what Libyans might do is turn the around question around and say, you know, is Eastern Libya really very distinct from Western Libya? And can those differences be reconciled? And even at the level of different cities, I mean, Misrata is so fiercely independent and it's been very difficult for those city-state identities to meld themselves into one country. So I think that's a huge challenge going forward. I wish I could see a quicker path for Libya to organize itself and build a really functional central state, but I don't see one anytime soon. Do you think SAFE is correct that there's a sort of nostalgia for authoritarianism in Libya after a decade of chaos? I do think he's correct about that. I think it's largely a misguided nostalgia because a lot of it takes place among younger people who didn't really know what it was like, at least not as adults in Gaddafi's Libya, and who didn't see how rigid the system was, how pretty much incapable of change it was how much violence there was, and how little real institution building took place. But throughout the region, we see a lot of nostalgia for authoritarianism, and we certainly see it across North Africa. As you think about the Middle East, do you think that is likely to be a phase until some sort of more liberal polity is consolidated? Or do you think that's likely to prove a more permanent feature of regional life? I wouldn't be surprised if more autocratic structures take hold in these places, just because it seems for the moment that people prefer the injustice of autocracy to the absolute chaos of what Libya has seen over the past 10 years. I mean, you saw the passion with which people embraced Sisi in Egypt. Obviously, Egypt is its own particular distinct identity, but I think some of that is true in some of these other countries. There's a feeling, well, at least we have some sense of law and order. A lot of people 
really feared veering off into something frighteningly new and different with an Islamist presidency. And even more than that, they feared real chaos. So that would seem to suggest that Saif al-Islam Gaddafi may actually have a political future in Libya. He may. One of the questions I was looking to answer for myself was, is this guy smart enough to play his cards right? If he could play his cards right, I think he really would have an excellent chance, right? Because he's got the name recognition. And that, I think, counts for a ton in Libya. But if he had the ability to sort of reach across the aisle and say, look, I have experienced what you've experienced. You know, I sympathize with what you went through and I sympathize with your aspirations back in 2011. And I know this country, East and West and South, and I can bring you guys together. You know, you can imagine the kind of speeches he could give. He doesn't. He doesn't. He remains vengeful, very narrow in the sense of who he is. He's trying to appeal to the old guard Qaddafists and the younger Qaddafists, but not to anyone else. Anyone who identified at all with that revolution, like all those people in Misrata, he's really just flipping them the bird. And he sounds still like someone who has private scores to settle and who is interested in his own position and power. So he's just not an impressive political mind. Robert Worth, thank you for joining us on Babel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Next up, John, Natasha, and I talk about popular authoritarians in the Middle East and around the world. We've recently taken an interest in this concept of popular authoritarians in the Middle East program. Worth talked about fear of change as under Morsi in Egypt or fear of ending up with chaos as in Libya. What else do you think drives this nostalgia and rose-tinted hindsight? You know, in late 2010, so this is just before the Arab Spring, I was actually driving around Peru and I saw this huge, freshly painted mural with Fujimori in big block orange letters. And I asked myself, is this for the former president Fujimori, who's responsible for really heinous human rights violations and death squads? The same Fujimori who is currently serving a 25-year prison sentence for those crimes. It wasn't him, but it was his daughter, Kiko, who runs on pretty much the same issues as her father and has run in every single presidential election since 2011. And she's gaining popularity. And her base are primarily those people that miss the days of her father when he was cracking down on communism and the Shining Path group. And I think that there's something else that makes us a bit uncomfortable when we think about these sort of popular authoritarians or popular leaders that don't have such democratic inclinations, but they're in power for a long time for a reason. I mean, it's not just ruthless repression, but it's also because they were able to buy off and attract a segment of the population who benefited from their rule. So I think that's always going to leave a, a strong base of support from those who are disenchanted with the new era who don't necessarily gain from the new leader. But Danny's point, and I think it, it's correct, that in many cases, these leaders are genuinely popular. In many places like Egypt, I think the leader, although not elected in free and fair elections, would win free and fair elections because a majority of the population supports that leader. One of the things that's striking is that a lot of people feel that the repression doesn't affect them. It affects troublemakers. It affects small elites in capital cities that what they're looking for is somebody who can speak directly to their needs. A lot of these leaders tend to be populist. It's not that they're bought off, that, that the majority of the population feels that the leader is on their side, 
the leader is attacking small groups that are trying to take away from the interests of the public. To a remarkable degree, I see a lot of these populist leaders genuinely having majority support, although it's not in a democratic system that periodically polls people for their political support. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I think it's the same with Fujimori. I think you see this everywhere. These people that are longing for the days that might have been safer and better for them, not necessarily for everyone, mind you, but at least for them. But I think in many cases, these leaders genuinely do have majority support, although there is the absence of elections. That leads to the point of what is a real democracy? Is it just about elections? Because often one election can lead to one popular authoritarian being in power for decades, as we've seen in the Middle East, but as we've also seen all over the world. And so what do you do when there's a sort of small minority that is willing to fight for democracy for the sake of democracy? I think there's something emotional to it as well. I observed this in Jordan a few years ago. When you're driving around Amman, every now and again, you'd see a sticker of Saddam Hussein's face in the back of someone's windscreen. And as an American, that was a little bit jarring. But when I talked to people around me about it and asked them what it was, they would tell me about this feeling of dignity and strength in the face of oppression that Saddam had stood up to the West. And even if that hadn't been so successful, there was something to be said for that. And I think to many, that seems to be enough to overlook some of his crimes that, as Natasha says, may not have been directly affecting them. And there's a long strain in political history of large numbers of people feeling that there's an elite that systematically profits from their labors, that is only interested in enriching itself. And for leaders like, whether it's Fujimori in Peru, or Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, or others, the view that they put forward is we are with the people against the small minority. I think one of the things you've seen, not only in Federalist 10 in the United States, but in other places, is the measure of a democracy is not merely what the majority wants, but how minorities are treated. And a lot of the embrace of authoritarianism, it's populist authoritarianism, where people feel I am taken care of. It's a small group that isn't, but that's their problem. And the other piece of a lot of these popular authoritarian regimes is that they feel it's pretty clear what the rules are to stay out of trouble. And as long as you don't get involved in politics, and as long as you don't talk about certain things, people say, I don't need to talk about them. I get taken care of. And a small number of troublemakers get what they deserve. And, and I think in, in many cases, people don't have a problem with that as long as the regime is producing what they consider results. And I think one of the things you've seen is a number of these regimes trying to create situations where even if they don't generate economic results, they protect the public from threats. And the threat can be an external threat. It can be an internal threat. It can be a perceived internal threat. And increasingly, we see Middle Eastern governments portraying the Muslim Brotherhood as an existential threat to the future of the country. Part of that is a tactic to keep the public feeling that even if we're not getting the kinds of economic rewards that we want to have, the government is still protecting us from a minority that wants to profit at our expense, and we should support the government on that basis. 
Yeah, and I think the the danger of this popular authoritarian model is, of course, authoritarian learning. So by the time the majority of the population or a larger segment of the population feels that their rights are not being upheld or they're not getting anything out of the system, it's too late. And you see this with Qaddafi, I mean, Qaddafi the senior, with Hafez al-Assad, with a lot of dictators that have emerged in Africa and elsewhere. Once they've completely solidified the system and centralized it around their own cult of personality or power base, it becomes that much harder to overturn the system, to go back to the democracy. The cost of change just significantly rises, as we saw with the Arab Spring. But when you also poll people about democracy, you see ambivalence, partly because people associate democracy and moves toward democracy with worse results, partly because people see democracy as allowing small elites to capture the system as opposed to having a leader who runs the system on behalf of the whole population. I think one of the things that Americans have been very resistant to is appreciating the extent to which there's much more division in the Middle East about the desirability of democracy than people presume. I've seen a number of people explain results of a low degree of interest in democracy, say that the issue is people see democracy as Israel and they see Israel as an oppressive state, so they don't want to support democracy. But I think in reality, there are a lot of complicated understandings and what people really want is better results. And governments, as you say, with authoritarian learning are getting better at portraying what they do as a positive result, even though as Bob Springboard said a couple of weeks ago, you've generally seen the quality of results in the Middle East economically and politically diminishing rather than increasing. I think at the end of the day, there's probably a very small segment of even the U.S. population that would fight for democracy for the sake of having a democracy. Because it's really hard work. It's a lifetime commitment like a marriage. You have to be able to disagree and compromise and trust that the other person isn't going to kill you in your sleep. And you have to really believe in it and fight for it, even when things aren't going well, because you just inherently believe that you're collectively better off in a democracy than not. But I think the reality is that in the Middle East and all over the world, people want a good life for themselves and their kids. That's what they want. They want to live their lives with dignity, whatever that looks like. And that doesn't necessarily come with an election. That doesn't necessarily come with a nascent democracy, especially. So if if they don't feel that, they will go looking for other answers. And what's going to be tempting to go with the guy that says he's going to make everything better again, whether the answer is Bolsonaro or Putin or Qaddafi. So I, I think that the issue of these activists who fight solely for democracy for the sake of democracies is missing the point a little bit and focusing too much on inherently how people in the Middle East, many of whom have never experienced a burgeoning democracy or flourishing democracy, it makes it hard for them to say yay or nay to a system like that if they haven't felt it and all of their experience with it. So if you look at Lebanon or Israel, is negative for you know one reason or another. Is there something about our reading of popular authoritarians that is heavily dependent on this class basis that fails to capture what's going on in, let's say, richer countries in the Gulf, talking about Saudi Arabia or the UAE, where you don't have, at least in quite the same way as you would have in Egypt or Libya, a majority population that is other than 
rich elites, if you will. There are a lot of people in the UAE and Saudi Arabia who aren't wealthy. But if you compare what this generation's experienced compared to what the previous generation's experienced compared to what the previous generation has experienced, the leaders have a fairly good case to make that we helped guide people toward prosperity. And I have an Emirati friend who says, you have to appreciate the, the well of goodwill that exists for the government here because of how much has changed. The first paved road in Abu Dhabi was only 60 years ago in 1961. And you go now and it's a tremendous difference. And people in many cases have told me this isn't even because of the oil wealth. This is because we have great leadership. The leadership has associated itself with all the positive things that have happened. And because so much has happened, there's been so much economic growth. I think the way it works in a place like the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Kuwait is different from the way people would think about a leader in a place like Syria or Egypt, where there has always, for the last 70 years, been a, a sort of ideological tinge to the populist leadership. And, and I don't think there's anything ideological to the way authoritarian regimes work in the Gulf. It's all about prosperity and economic growth. Back to the point of Libya, which is a country with a fairly small population, a huge land size, but a very small population, and enormous oil wealth as well. And all boats were not rising and people were not terribly content towards the end. So I'm skeptical to see if Saif Qaddafi can reemerge from the ashes but I think that a big segment of bringing Libya stability is exactly that, is trying to get economic development started, trying to get security started. There's a lot of pressure on the elections this December, but I think Libya's future is really going to be based on what leader can bring that to the fore. I remember when Frank Fukuyama wrote his End of History article in the late 1980s, with a sense that everybody understood that democracy was better and democracy going to triumph and there's no more effort to struggle to define the system that everybody's moving toward. I still think what I thought when I read it then, that I'm not convinced everybody thinks that democratic systems will deliver the best outcomes for them. And there, there is this way in which populist leaders of any stripe, democratic or authoritarian, argue that I will deliver directly to the people the benefits that the people need. And it's these intermediary processes and intermediate classes that get in the way of the people getting everything they need. And I remember President Sisi of Egypt, as he was just about to run for the presidency, arguing to me that the politicians distort the will of the public and that he, as a simple army officer, understands the widow better than any politician does and would serve the widow better than any politician does. To a remarkable degree, a lot of the public agrees. They don't think that checks and balances lead to efficiency. They think checks and balances lead to money being siphoned off in corruption. They want something that delivers benefits directly to them and they see a lot of these leaders doing it. It's what kings in the region do, right? I mean, they talk about how much they care for the people. They look after the people. It's in many ways the exact same approach. 
when you're taking foreign policy classes, often the example is India versus China in terms of economic prosperity. You have India, the democracy, and you have China, the communist system that's in place and who delivered for the people. But I I think you get to another really good point, which is a mistake that people in existing democracies might make. And often democratic activists in the Middle East and elsewhere also make thinking or assuming that everyone else thinks a democratic system is the best system or that this system of checks and balances is inherently a good thing. And I think for a lot of you know, elite activists throughout the world and including within the United States, it's something to think about and to understand how you can ensure that an entire population believes that this democratic system is the end of history or the way forward, as Fukuyama would say. Sometimes we ask, do people think that democratic government is the best way of going about it? I think there's a theoretical question and a practical question. And even if people were to agree with you that in a perfect system, the democratic form of government is best, when you add in variables like friction and segmented populations and sectarian divide and lack of resources, maybe the practical experience isn't going to be quite the same. And the other question is what the transition to democracy looks like. And certainly the aftermath of the Arab Spring, where people saw civil wars break out in Libya and Syria and Yemen, the prospect of of going down that road becomes much less attractive. Where you did have a popular revolution and you did have a change in government in a place like Egypt, many Egyptians would argue they're back to where they started, if not a little bit more repressive. So the lack of a positive example that leads to prosperity and I would also say that when you look at the Arab Spring, actually, especially in Tunisia, often it wasn't necessarily just about democracy. And this goes back to an earlier point I made about people just wanting dignity and a better life for themselves and a better life than they experience for their children, not worse. And that's not what people were seeing in places like Tunisia and Syria and elsewhere. So I also believe it's a bit arguable whether everyone was taking to the streets to fight for democracy. I think a lot of people certainly wanted change in their lives, but whether that was democracy or something else, I think also kind of remains to be seen. And often, even when you look at places like Libya and and Syria and you talk to people, this really terrible past decade has also, I don't want to say changed their view on democracy. I would say that it's realigned their priorities. Now they really want justice, for example, in a lot of instances. So it'll be interesting and potentially devastating for the next 10 years to see how that that actually plays out in some of these countries that experienced the unfortunate brunt of the Arab Spring. John and Natasha, thank you. Thank you, Danny. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Babbel.